Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be back finishing up this summer book club series on the podcast. I took, I believe, about a month off to work on some other stuff and to just take a little bit of a break. But as promised, the finale is going to be on Cicely Tyson's Just As I Am. The book is split into three sections. Section one is titled Planted. Section two is titled Rooted. And section three is titled Bountiful. So today I'm going to be discussing the part of the book that is under planted. Some of the themes that I'm going to focus on are immigration, racism, colorism, activism. This is actually my third time going through this book. I love it so much. I'm going to start with some of the origins, Cicely's father and her mother immigrating to the United States and kind of how racism had a role throughout a lot of her experience. Cicely Tyson had 96 years of lived experience. She's lived through so many different periods, and I think that her perspective is very unique. So I'm going to jump in. Quote, My father arrived at Ellis Island in the summer of 1919 just before his 22nd birthday. The First World War's dust was still settling, and Jim Crow's cloud hung over the land. Woodrow Wilson was president. In 1918, the year before my dad sailed ashore on the SS Corona, Wilson screened, in the halls of the White House, The Birth of a Nation, a silent motion picture exalting Klansmen as saviors and depicting black people as ape-like, menacing degenerates. That is the America my dad entered, one with a legacy of assault on heroes who tilled its soil. But my father and millions of others came here nonetheless, compelled by a force more powerful than hate, a hunger for opportunity. In his front vest pocket, my father held the same resolve to better himself that still lures the most strident to our shores." As if two jobs weren't enough to fill my dad's work days, he enlisted in the 369th Infantry Regiment, the first all-black National Guard unit, famously known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Dad trained at Camp Whitman in New York, but never served overseas. The men in his unit who did fight in the First World War were among this country's most gallant and well-decorated. After white American soldiers refused to perform combat duties alongside blacks, the U.S. Army assigned the Hellfighters to the French Army. The men spent 191 days in the frontline trenches, more combat time there than any other American unit. 
During their triumph in staving off the Germans, the troop also suffered the most losses, with 1,500 casualties. Despite their extraordinary valor and service, they returned home to the democracy my dad was navigating, a woefully prejudiced society that, at every turn, denied black people equal citizenship. End quote. Before I jump into the next quote, I just wanted to let you know that throughout this particular episode, I'm not going to provide too much commentary of my own because the words that are provided are so good that they kind of speak for themselves. So it's more so an episode where I'm kind of curating some things that jumped out to me. So this next section is on colorism. When it came to colorism in society at large, I was certainly not immune. No one had to tell me that the fairer your skin and the narrower your nose and lips, the more stunning you were considered. That belief permeated the atmosphere. Caucasian women were upheld as the standard of beauty, while our features were denigrated. In print media, black hair was portrayed as unkempt, a crop of wild, irascible wool that required taming. My mother and other black women were mostly invisible to whites, and when they did see us, it was through the cracked and muddied lens of racial bias. In their view, and in their advertisements, we were mammies and maids, subservient and ignorant, filthy and lazy, and yet somehow diligent, clean, and honorable enough to prepare their meals and rear their children. At best, our presence was tolerated or ignored. At worst, we were systematically locked out of home ownership and wealth creation, redlined into ghettos and lynched. In no regard were we thought worthy of emulation, and not just our appearance was scorned. Our intelligence and very humanity were questioned, considered genetically unfit. The lie of black inferiority was built right into America's infrastructure. And to this day, that framework remains stubbornly intact. Given my dark complexion, I spotted no future for myself as a pinup girl. Much as my father in particular affirmed me, I did not feel pretty. And my classmates amplified that feeling. On the playground, I heard a looping trio of insults. Skinny, nappy-headed, and nigger. The latter truly stung me on the day an Italian boy in my class called me that. He and I lived across the street from one another, so even when we weren't in school, we played together. That ended on the morning he came into our first grade class with a grin on his face and a little poem. Hey, Cicely, he said. You want to hear something funny? I nodded. He cleared his throat and began. God made the niggers, he made them at night. God was in a hurry and forgot to make them white. I stared at the boy, refusing to let the devastation in my heart spill over onto my face, unwilling to give him the satisfaction of knowing his words had pierced me. In the life of every black child, a moment arrives when he or she becomes retchingly aware of how we are perceived. This bruising recognition was among my first, end quote. And so just a little bit of history 
to provide context here, Cicely talked about how the perception of Black people, especially Black beauty and hair standards, were perceived in that time. Uh, Cicely Tyson is the first Black woman to ever wear her natural hair on TV in the United States. So um, she was definitely a trailblazer in that regards in showing people different perspectives of what Black beauty is. So I've always admired that. Quote, to be colored in early 20th century America was to brave an existence even more fraught with anxiety than our current times are. End quote. I've shared in previous episodes and in articles that I've written about the tendency of people of color to kind of keep family issues and traumas quiet. Cicely Tyson actually provides some great context on that, which opened my eyes a little bit to why this is a phenomenon. So, quote, Even with my childhood long behind me, I find it difficult to lay bare my parents' blemishes. My instinct is to protect their legacies in a world where we are too often demonized. My mom and dad, with all of their frailties, are part of a centuries-long story, a narrative setting that hangs behind a myriad of black lives. That story harkens back to when our foreparents were herded into ships, their naked bodies stacked, row after row, amid vomit and sewage, for the treacherous Middle Passage. That tale continued as more than 200 years of enslavement pressed its foot down on our necks. Our men were emasculated and thrashed, our women raped and brutalized, our families ripped apart and auctioned off like cattle, our grueling labor uncompensated. We still bear the emotional and economic scars. The assault on us and its resulting trauma spans generations. Our traditions, our communities, our dignity, all of it has endured barbarous attack. And when someone makes an assassination attempt on your tribe, you adopt a posture of self-defense. You fold in on yourself as a way to cover your wounds. And you dare not hand your assailant another weapon, another piece of shrapnel he or she will use to further shame and dehumanize your people. This is the painful history my parents were born into. And it is only against this backdrop that their many choices and faces can be understood. The United States has never been one nation under God, but several nations gazing up at him, dissimilar faces huddled beneath a single flag. In white America, the 20s may have roared, but in my black world, the decade also moaned. Then, when stock prices plummeted, catapulting the nation into its worst economic downturn, black people knew what we still know. Communities of color are always grappling with financial despair. The fact that the Great Depression was given a name just meant that enough whites were now suffering alongside us to warrant an official title. When the financial markets collapsed on October 29, 1929, the Roaring 20s sobered up and whimpered to a close. According to the Library of Congress, the unemployment rolls during the Great Depression swelled to 24% for white workers. Black workers sustained double that blow. In 1932, 50% of us were unemployed. 
These white folks were jumping out of windows, falling out like paper in the wind, my mother observed in that era. Breadlines and soup kitchens formed as Americans struggled for their next meals in a nation where, a few short years earlier, surplus had abounded. My own parents and thousands of others relied on government assistance to close the gap between what they could earn and what they needed for basic survival. Over and over in our world, we have witnessed how today's riches can become tomorrow's scarcity. We do well to heed the lesson. In times of plenty, paucity sits by, licking its lips and awaiting its next grand appearance. The Depression was just one of the series of devastations black people endured during the 30s. In 1931, the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenagers, were falsely accused in Alabama of raping two white women on a train. In a case of blatant racial bias, an all-white jury convicted the boys and sentenced eight of them to death. The following year, the U.S. government sanctioned the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, a 40-year-long health assault on our community. Biomedical research doctors recruited impoverished black men with the promise of free medical care, these physicians claimed to be treating the men for so-called bad blood, but in fact, they were using blacks as guinea pigs to study the long-term effects of syphilis. Scores of our men knowingly left untreated with syphilis long after penicillin had been discovered as a cure, suffered blindness and death. The attack on our humanity continued in 1934, that year, the Federal Housing Administration established redlining, a set of racially discriminatory real estate and bank lending practices that barred blacks from purchasing homes in white neighborhoods, and thus set the stage for wealth disparity between black and white households that remains to this day. Home and land ownership are the primary means by which Americans have historically amassed wealth and when blacks were locked out of bank loans and segregated into slums, we were robbed of the potential to build fortunes. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal brought a measure of relief for poor blacks, but some of its policies, such as redlining, made the New Deal a raw one for us. It's no wonder that many African Americans carry a lingering distrust of whites even those we sincerely love and embrace. Given the horrors of our abuse in this nation, we are understandably wary. To ever heal these deep racial traumas, and seldom has it felt more urgent that we do, we must acknowledge that they indeed still exist, throbbing and tender beneath the surface, spilling over like molten rage into the streets. As difficult as it is to recall this country's atrocities, it is essential that every American of every color does. It is critical that we connect that centuries-long ugly history with a cop's knee on George Floyd's neck and bullets riddling Breonna Taylor's body. The line from our nation's original sin to its present heartache is not faint and dotted. It is solid and direct. And even when the impulse arises to cringe and look away from a system predicated on black oppression, a system that is still doing precisely what it was designed to do, we must stare into the face of our past and examine what happened here. 
on our soil, much of it less than a lifetime ago, a lot of it happening now. Turning a blind eye to our history has not saved us from its consequences. End quote. You may hear a little bit of background noise. One of my neighbors is mowing their grass. But I'm going to jump into the next part where Cicely talks about encountering racism as she began her career in acting. Quote, Before Sounders' release, I traveled across the country on a promotional tour with some of the other cast members. From San Francisco to Boston, Indianapolis to Richmond, reporters who'd previewed the film gathered to interview me about the production. It was during my stop in Philadelphia that the earth quaked. Among the group of reporters stood a Caucasian gentleman, auburn hair and around age 30. He cleared his throat, lifted the microphone to his lips, and locked his gaze on me. I have a confession to make, he said slowly, as if calculating the impact of what he would reveal. I never thought of myself as being the least bit prejudiced, he said, but as I watched the film, I just could not believe that the son was calling his father, Daddy. That is what my son calls me. Silence blanketed the room. Well, child, I'll tell you, my mouth fell open like a broken pocketbook. As the man's words shuddered through me, I forced a smile. But all the while I was thinking, my Lord, how appalling. This man clearly knew nothing about our shared humanity. He had no understanding of God's multi-hued creation, of his place next to ours and mine in that colorful family mosaic. From his perspective, there had to be something radically wrong with a black child calling his father daddy, a term he thought reserved for his own kind. How could Nathan, once declared three-fifths human by our constitution, be worthy of such endearment? How could a fraction of a man stand forehead to forehead with him? That would put Nathan on par with all those born into the privilege of whiteness, as he had been. I don't know what stunned me more, the fact that the man believed what he did, or that he had the audacity to say it aloud. After a lengthy pause, I regained my composure and my tongue. I have to congratulate you, sir, I said, my tone tinged with sarcasm. It takes a lot of courage to stand up here, in the midst of your peers, and admit you never thought you were prejudiced until you saw the film. Thank you. I was so disturbed by what I'd heard, in that moment, this was the only response I could muster. I left that press conference saying to myself, maybe it's just this one. Surely, amid the shrill call for equality sounding during those years, there couldn't be many who shared this man's view. That is how I attempted to console myself. Yet as I continued touring the country, I became acquainted with an America I'd seldom encountered up until then. At the time, I considered myself fairly knowledgeable about this nation I have always called home. I'd grown up in New York and lived either there or in Los Angeles, two culturally progressive cities, but outside of that bubble and the many towns and communities I regularly flew over, the seed of Dr. King's dream might have been sown, but it obviously had not germinated. During a stop in the Midwest, another's reporter's comment reinforced that notion. I didn't know that black men and women had the kind of loving relationship that we see between Nathan and Rebecca, 
a young woman stated. Their connection didn't seem believable to me. I was taken aback by her assessment that I did not respond. So seldom had black families been portrayed in nurturing one another on screen that when art indeed imitated life, the truth of that narrative was met with deep skepticism. Embedded in this woman's observation was an assumption that lives at the center of all bias. You are not like me. You are intrinsically different, and that difference deems you inferior. I recognized these comments for what they were, pure ignorance. Anger would have been the justified response, and for a time in private, I was certainly apoplectic. But as life has taught me more than once, resentment corrodes the veins of the person who carries it. These reporters' beliefs, however offensive they may have been to me, were not a bitterness to be nursed. They were a lesson to be heeded. So rather than recoiling in exasperation at the ideas expressed, I leaned in and listened intently at every remaining tour stop. Much of what I heard mimicked what those two reporters had dared voice, and the more aware I became of the bigotry that existed against black people, what might have been reason to seethe became, for me, a reason to pursue my craft with a new purpose. I returned home from the road saying to myself, Sister, you've got some educating to do. End quote. Cicely Tyson used her experiences in recognizing the state of the nation and how much work there was left to do with regards to racism and injustice. She used her medium of acting as a way to be an activist. Quote, when I made the choice to pursue acting, the last thing in the world I intended to be was an actress for the cause. Like most artists, I expected to continually hone my craft by playing all types of roles, with little consideration for how those portrayals might impact the cultural dialogue. But the racial climate called for something more of me, and while traveling this great land, I resolved to answer in the one way I knew how. Never once, during the billowing smoke of the civil rights movement, would I be spotted at a Woolworth lunch counter, braving a sit-in while hate-mongerers hurled spit and spite. Never would I parade up and down the boulevards of Selma or Montgomery, a picket sign thrust high alongside my shouts. I admire the valiant freedom fighters who took to the streets, but it wasn't in my makeup to demonstrate in these ways. Nonetheless, I was set on speaking in the only place I felt courageous enough to do so, on the stage. I protested using not my own words, but those of the characters I inhabited. Fifty years after I made a silent pact with myself to play women whose legacies uplift us, that vow still guides me." End quote. So to conclude part one of this three-part review on Cicely Tyson's Just As I Am, I'm sure that the listeners can agree that the insights that Cicely Tyson provides in her book are very profound. And each time I read this book, I learn so much more. It takes on a different perspective each time I read it. So hopefully you've gotten something out of this. Uh, The next episode will be on part two of the book, which the title heading is Rooted. But until then, thank you for listening and take care.
Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.